And just as a point of information for you, this will be what normally would be at the announcement time at the end. We are receiving offerings for the Annie Armstrong North American Missions through the month of March. Our goal is $17,000, and uh, so we hope that you'll make that a matter of prayer. Um, so several years ago, three to be exact, I received an email from a gentleman. I recognized the name. He and his wife had been visiting church where I was pastoring at the time. And he said he'd like to talk to me about some things, but he said I'd prefer to do it at my house. And so I said, all right. I responded to him. I said, I'll, I'll be there. And we set a time. And so I went over to see him. He was an entrepreneur. He had several businesses that he had put together and were doing fairly well in life. And uh, he was looking for a church home. And so he uh, wanted to talk to us about the church where I was pastoring. And uh, so I, I, as I went into his house, I noticed several things immediately. One of them was it looked like there was a zoo in there, except all of the zoo animals had been mounted on the walls, or at least their neck and heads. And uh, he was, as it turns out, a big game hunter, and so he had all kinds of uh, that around his house. But he asked me to go with him out to the back. He said, I want to show you something back here. And so we went out of the main house, out into the back part of his property and into a garage. But it wasn't a garage like most of us think about garages. This was one that housed uh, a number of unique and rare automobiles. And it was a spotless garage. It was more of a show house than it was anything else. And uh, he just walked me from one vehicle to the next, and uh, he had some Porsches in there and some other really nice cars. And we came to one that was a Mustang. And I don't know if you're a car aficionado or not. Uh, I wasn't. And so it looked like a Mustang to me. And I thought, what is that doing in here with, with all these really nice cars? And uh, he said, you probably recognize this car. I said, uh, it's a Mustang. He said, yes, but also this is a rare car. And as a matter of fact, this is the car that was used in the movie Gone in 60 Seconds. Now, whether you know that movie or not, it, it is probably our generation's uh, equivalent to Steve McQueen's movie called Bullet. Now, some of you will relate to that. If that doesn't get you, maybe you're a little more on this uh, current generation, uh, it was, uh, it's kind of like the, the car from the movie Cars. Where, and, and what I really am trying to get at with this is that one of the, the standard success formulas for adventure movies is chase scene. In other words, uh, if you're making an action movie, one of the things you can be pretty sure that you can uh, pull off, as long as you film it well, is an action sequence where there is a chase of some kind. Um, you might even go to the film Top Gun, where the chase scene actually occurred in the air. But it's one of those recurring themes that we find in movies and uh, I think it sets the tone for us today. Here, here's the thing about a chase scene in a movie. We know for it to work, it can't just be two cars that are driving fast through places like James Bond movies. Every one of them has one of these. But it can't just be that. There has to be enough of the plot there that we recognize that if the lead character, the hero, if you will, of the film 
involved in this chase, if he doesn't get away, then it's a major turn and everything goes south after that. I start there today because I think that that's a pretty good snapshot picture for us of some of what happens in our lives. And we've been talking about the chase as we work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And when we come to this passage today, Ecclesiastes 8, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there. We'll be in verses 16 and 17 in just a few moments. But here's what we find. As a chase scene in a movie plays out, we know that the plot turns based on what happens in the chase. That is much like the lives that we live in our spiritual uh, presentation in a day-to-day manner. We face issues from time to time that may well cause our spiritual health to hang in the balance. It's a snapshot of our life, but as we find with the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's been on this long, perpetual kind of search for meaning and for fulfillment in his life. We all have our own chase. We all have that part of our lives where we keep looking for those kind of things until we find it ultimately in Jesus Christ. But there are those times that we come into situations that if we don't make the right choice or things don't turn out the way we want them to turn out, we may well choose to walk away from God himself. The writer of Ecclesiastes comes to the end of chapter 8, and we pick up now where we left off last week, or at least the passage where we left off last week, and he's been talking about some of those observations that he has. And last week we emphasized the fact that we all have to make choices, and it behooves us to make good choices in life. And he comes to summarize that, and, and it doesn't seem like such a positive kind of summary. I think by the time we get through the end of this, we'll see that it is much more positive than it looks on the surface. But let's go ahead and read verse 16 and 17. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. Your translation may say the handiwork of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking... He will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There's a progression of thought that he gives us in chapter 8. It comes to this conclusion in verses 16 and 17. And so let's back up a little bit and let's walk through to see if we can understand the context and the direction that he seems to be pointing us. Here's the first of three big ideas I want you to get today. This first one, life situations can take us to the end of ourselves. We all know, each of us knows, that life can be really hard. Each of us knows that life has this way of bringing trouble and depositing it at our doorstep. We, we understand that trouble is part of the mix, but how we view that trouble matters. You may remember a number of years ago now when NASA was working hard and diligently to try to get a better and a more high-definition kind of view into our solar system. 
And so they came up with this idea for the Hubble telescope. And so they put everything together at the cost of a huge amount of money. And they finally launched it out and got it out into orbit. And when they finally trained that camera to go deep and to penetrate space in our solar system, they found that the pictures were blurry. And what was intended to be this best ever look into the dark reaches of space ended up being just blurry pictures, not much better than what we had here. Well, that wasn't acceptable to NASA or to anybody else for the amount of money that had been spent. And so they decided to put together a group of their scientists to figure out what was wrong with it, how they could get it fixed. And so that panel of scientists worked to try to figure everything out. And when they finally came to give a report, here's what one of those scientists had to say. Here's the first lesson we learned. Never plan a mission and title the mission with anything that rhymes with the word trouble. Well, it may be an astute observation, but it's not really very scientific when you get right down to it. But I start there because I want us to come to grips with the way we do and deal with and refer to the troubles of our lives. Wouldn't it be great if the only thing you really had to do to identify what was going on that seems to be going wrong is just change the name of it? Trouble comes packed and delivered into our lives. It's part of the human condition. You don't get a choice about whether you have trouble or not. You only get a choice about how you deal with trouble in your life. Maybe that some of us are here today We're fighting through some things, and we brought a world's worth of troubles with us today. Oh, we look fine on the outside, but if people could just get inside your heart and your head, they would find that trouble is winning the day for some of us today. And trouble is common to the human condition. It is so prevalent in our condition that we have learned how to mark time based on the trouble that we have. If I were to say to some of you, what was going on in American society in the late 1800s? Many of us, maybe not all that great student of history, might say, I don't know. But if I say to you, do you know anything about the Civil War? That piece of trouble in our national spirit, in our national presentation, that time frame is labeled by the trouble that we had. Same is true World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, or for our generation, perhaps the one that catches us the most, it's just two numbers. And those two numbers help us to mark time with the trouble that occurred not just then but in the days after that. And so if I say 9-11, all of us immediately go to that crisis in the American spirit that occurred during those days. We mark time by observing trouble and putting labels on it not just true for us as a nation, it's true for us as individuals too. You look back in your history and some of the times that you remember the most, whether it's positive or not, uh, are those times where you had major crises in your life. Relationship problems, financial problems, a diagnosis from a doctor, and the weeks and sometimes months and years that come after that based on that diagnosis. Trouble is common to the human condition, and it is also so prolific in our lives that we mark time with it. And what happens with us, if we're not careful, is as we come to the end of ourselves, our peace gets hijacked. 
and those things that we believe about the Christian life and the, the things that we tie to, the positive things that we tie to the Christian life, all of those things when trouble begins to sit in on us can easily be pushed to the side. It's like a chase scene, and how we respond to that impacts how the story goes. Most of us have known people who came to some of those circumstances in their lives and their Christian faith suddenly was pushed to the side. The writer of Ecclesiastes has been talking about a few things in the first 15 verses. But by the time he gets to verse 16 and 17, he's drawing this conclusion and he starts wrapping up this particular part of his chase. And it sounds like, at least on the surface, it sounds like he's just throwing his hands up and says once again, it's just meaningless. It doesn't make sense. I think he's saying more to us than that. But on the surface, that's what it looks like. So let me stop this first point about coming to the end of ourselves by making these observations for you. How we respond when we come to the end of ourselves matters. For many of us, our world just keeps getting smaller and smaller. When we were younger, we were out and about, and our circle of friends was large, and our acquaintances even larger than that. But one of the things about life that seems to be true is the older we get, the smaller our world becomes. And it's easy in those times to lose heart. And so the trouble that we face at that stage of life can easily lead to despair. Three years ago, my, I got a phone call from our family members in the Dallas area. One of the smartest guys that I ever knew. His name was Bill. He was my friend for many years, but eventually in the last uh, 10 years of his life, he was my brother-in-law. He was one of the smartest guys I knew. He was a pastor for a while. But trouble set in on him, and his life as a Christian, his life as a leader in in Christ's church uh, began to take hits. And he began to lose heart with that, and his choice as it related to how he lived his life as a Christian began to reflect a lack of faith and a lack of trust and a lack of willingness to stick with the stuff. So he developed another career, and he followed that. But Bill's life wound down to a point that finally one night he drove himself to his place of employment, went and laid down on the edge of the parking lot and ended his life. Nobody's exempt from troubles of life. All of us will face them. Many of us are facing some today that may well be threatening our own faith today. If you're here today, I have good news for you. One of the best conditions in life to get into is to be at the end of yourself, to be at the end of your rope. Now, just because you get there is not a good thing. It's what you choose to do with that that matters. And so let's take this next step with us, or with the writer here, because at the end of ourselves, that's the first point. The second one is at the end of ourselves, our search begins. You know, some things in life are important enough that we should pull out all stops in our search, that we should uh, undertake an exhaustive and an exhausting search for those things. Let me give you an example of one, a coffee pot. 
I was just waiting to see if that set in on you or not. That doesn't really, that doesn't really sound like it ought to be one that ought to be an exhaustive kind of... But you see, when Teresa and I moved into our house a couple of months ago, uh, December the 22nd, December the 23rd, we woke up and needed coffee. And we had boxes everywhere. It was such a deal that now normally the rules of our house tend to be that I get up early and then she gets up whenever she wants to. And typically I get up and make coffee. Well, on this particular day, she was up long before I was. And so when I woke up and I went in the kitchen, I found her digging in boxes. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm looking for the coffee pot. And so I backed away and gave her plenty of space so that she could do what she needed to do. And she dug through boxes. She unpacked our whole kitchen in record time looking for a coffee pot. And I was glad that she did. Finally, I, went, I said to her, let's go to the store and buy a coffee pot because we can't find the one that we need. Here's why that's important for us. You know, we have a way of setting in our own little searches. Some things make the top of our list, that list that says, okay, whatever else you do today, you need to find this. It might be a coffee pot today. It might be a particular piece of furniture tomorrow or something like that. But the reality as we come to life is there are a lot more important things than just coffee pots and furniture and those kind of things. As a matter of fact, when we come into this study of the book of Ecclesiastes, this guy Solomon, if he's indeed the one who wrote it, the wisest man who ever lived, is looking at life going, I need to make sense of this. And so we find him looking for peace and for meaning and for fulfillment and all of those things that drive the way we live our everyday lives. When those things are missing, then we sure enough find ourselves at the end of ourselves. That's where the preacher is at the end of chapter 8. Note again how he responds to that because what I've tried to say to you so far is all of us face trouble. That trouble has a way of getting us to the end of our own resources and when that happens, we need to find something that does work and here's the intensity of the search that he gives us. Look at verse 16, the first part. He says, when I applied my heart, let me just stop there. That echoes what we find in verse 9. I'll go back and read this. All this I observed while applying my heart. It's the same thing that he says over in chapter 1, verse 13. What we get from that is his example to us is that when you get to the end of yourself, then you need to be all in on the search. This is not for the faint of heart. This is a search that moves us into places and into areas of our lives that have no guarantees depending on what kind of choices we make. So he would say to us, by his example and through these words that we should, uh, we should make sure that our search, our chase, is productive. But in order for it to be productive, we have to have the right kind of focus. I think we get a little messed up here sometimes because I think sometimes our focus in those troublesome times, especially the kind of trouble that moves us to the end of ourselves, is our typical, well, let me just tell you this, the way that you really want to evaluate how you have perspective on your problems is to evaluate the prayers that you pray when you're in those circumstances. Let me give you the prayer that I was taught 
by one of my mentors. When he, he said, whenever he got into those situations where it seemed like God might be a long ways out there, or at least he's not listening, one of the things that this mentor said, he said, my prayer is this. All the time my prayer is this. God, you need to help me. You're about to lose a good preacher down here. <laughs> now, you just change preacher out and put your name in there or your occupation in there, and that tends to be the way we pray when we run into situations that are laden with trouble. We pray for relief. Or we pray for deliverance. We pray some of the most honest prayers that anyone could ever pray. God, this hurts. I don't like it. Make it change. And I'm here to tell you, I think that's a good prayer. I think it's a good prayer. It, the best prayer that you can ever pray is the one that reflects where your heart is. God knows your heart anyway. It's not like you're going to surprise him. As, uh, as one of my friends used to say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? You might as well be honest. So it's not a bad prayer, but I don't think it's the best prayer. Or at least not always the best prayer. Here's the prayer that I think helps us have the right perspective when it comes to the problems that we face in our own chase scenes. Lord, help me to understand what you're doing in this situation. You see, that's different than deliver me out of this situation. That's different than this hurts, make it stop. The prayer is, Lord, help me to understand what you're doing in this situation. Let me give you the shorthand version. If, I, if you just remember one thing today, remember this. Use this in your own prayer life. It's not exactly a prayer, but it's, it's pretty much like that. You can use it as a prayer. Here it is, shorthand for what I just said. Here's the question. Where's God in this? In the problems and in the uh, troubles and the circumstances of my life, those that are causing me to have this uncertainty about where God is and how trustworthy he is. Where is God in this? You'd be surprised at how many times I pray that in a given week. Because the reality is things come at me every week that I don't fully understand. But I want to know what God's word is. I want to know what God's hand is. I want to know what his purpose is for me. Here's why I think this matters. This is why I think it's a better prayer than just get me out of this mess. When I pray, God, show me where you are in this, it has the tendency to take my heart and my head and to synchronize them with God's plan. Let me break that down for you. Because if I pray, if my whole approach from my heart level, that tends to be the emotional side of life, right? So I'm in this situation. This is a terrible situation. I don't want to be here. And so then we start, or you, not you, me, start whining about it. God, this is painful. I don't want to be here. What are you doing? I, I can't. And so the heart level for me gets me in trouble. The head level for me gets me in trouble more because that's the logical thinking thing. That's where I start looking at these situations going, okay, so let's figure out how we're going to do this. And I can chase that logical rabbit of my trouble all the way down a path that ultimately leads me nowhere. 
After all, you remember those passages like the one where it says, uh, God says, my ways are not your ways. Well, that takes the logical part of it right off the table. Here's the truth for you. If I work into the trouble that I have strictly from my emotional base or from my logical base of thinking, then I may stumble on God's plan for me, but it's a stumble on. But when I ask the question going into those problems and trying to work with those, God, where are you in this? It has a way of synchronizing my head with my heart with his plan. Because ultimately what I need to know more than anything else is not how I process the problem. What I need to know is what God's doing in that. I don't want to rattle us too much, but I believe that sometimes God engineers circumstances. Not all the time, but sometimes God engineers circumstances to get us into some of those situations. Because he knows that the only way we come to the end of ourselves is to see that we don't have what it takes to get through those things. You see, the the greatest lesson that either you or I can learn and to internalize in the Christian life where it lives itself out every day for us is to recognize that we don't have what it takes to get where we need to go. So part of this, sometimes, well, let let me, there's two elements here that I think help amplify what I'm saying. God, where are you in this? And so when I ask that question, I'm, I'm saying a couple of different things with it. First of all, it underscores the sovereignty of God. Now, we have to be careful with this. Sometimes our language in trying to say something about the sovereignty of God uh, almost seems to like lock God into, or paint God into a corner where everything that's terrible that ever happened is his doing. We have to be careful about that. But the reality is that God is God. Scripture is full of that. We, are, we recognize that God is beyond us. That's why we have to come to the end of ourselves. But we, we begin with the sovereignty of God. And sometimes God allows, if he is sovereign, and he is, then sometimes he allows us into trouble that is designed to help us grow in our Christian life. Most of us grow better when it's troublesome times than we do when it's all honey with no bees. And God knows that, and so he allows us into circumstances that cause us to come to the end of ourselves. If you're wondering why you are one of those who keeps having the same problem, it's, it's a different face, but it's the same problem time after time after time. We, we color those situations with these things. Why do bad things happen to good people? God, why am I going through this? Part of the answer may well be that God is trying to help you or me or we, us, get to the end of ourselves. So the sovereignty of God says that God allows those and sometimes even sends some of those problems for us. And the critical thing then becomes how do we choose to respond to them? But if we only have that, the sovereignty of God, that if we're not careful, we begin to have what some of our old uh, Christian leaders of years past and some famous sermons that I could quote even, uh, that leave God looking like an ogre who just can't wait to squash the humans who mess up. That's not the right picture of God. Oh, sure, he, he's capable of doing that. But 
from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation, everything in between there is the presentation of God to us that shows that he is actively involved in human history, moving uh, creation to its appointed end, and in the process of all of that, on every page of that is the grace of God, the love of God for his people. So when I go through something or you go through troubles that challenge you, you stand on the sovereignty of God that says God is involved in this one way or the other, but it's coupled with the love of God that is so intense for us that God wanted his plan for us that he sent his son to die so that we could have the life that he gave us. That's not God an ogre. That's God the giver who loves us and loves you in that trial, in that trouble that you're going through today. Those two things have to come together for us to make the right choice, to have the right perspective on the troubles that we face. Somehow, God is involved in the trouble that you're going through. And so the best thing that you can pray is, God, help me to understand where you are in this. You see, that pushes us to the third part of what we say. First of all, our troubles push us to the end of ourselves. Secondly, at the end of ourselves, we find the search gets real. And then thirdly, we find that our search ultimately leaves us in the hands of God. Now, let me, if you happen to be one of those who has a very high level of a need to know, you know, I need to know what God's doing here. I need to know. I don't just need to know where he is in this. I want to know uh, A, B, C, and D of how this is going to fall out. If that's you, you better prepare yourself for some disappointment. <laughs> because God doesn't always give you the answers to the questions that you have. The writer of Ecclesiastes gets that. Look at verse 17 again. He says, after, in verse 16, when I looked at everything that's out there, he says, 17, then I saw all the work of God. And here's his conclusion that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Here's what he's saying with that. Your search ultimately takes you to God, or it should. And that's enough. That may not be enough for you. You may look at that and go, wait on, hold on a second. Just, <laughs> I got to have some reasons to trust God in this. So part of us, what we need to do, and I'm going to talk about this some tonight in our Bible study, but uh, part of what we have to do every once in a while is stop and, and look backwards and trace the hand of God as he has systematically brought us through the trials of life. You know why he does that? Because he loves us. And the love of God is not this sappy, emotional kind of thing. I, I was telling the earlier service today, uh, you know, I have a couple of weddings that I have scheduled over the next few months, not here, but in another place. And, um, I, I, you know, there's nothing more sickening than a newlywed couple or a couple who's about to get married. <laughs> I, I sit, uh, because I, I require premarital counseling before I'll do a wedding, and uh, I, I sit with those couples, and it's just sappy. It's just sickening most of the time. <laughs> and I say to the, to the lady, usually it's the lady, 
why are you marrying this guy? What in the world are you thinking? You know what her answer is? I've, I've never failed to get this answer. Different packages, but it always boils down to this. Her response is, well, I just love him. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> Please hear me say this. That is not the picture of God's love for us. God's not sappy. He's not blind. God's love for us is appointed into our lives. He invests himself in us. And he takes us places we could never go without him. That's what love is. And so when we come to this life with him and we come to these situations where it doesn't seem like things are going the way we want them to go or we don't understand where his hand in it is in it, then it leaves us at this point of going, well, I, how can I trust God in this? If what the preacher says is right, and it is, then, then I can't understand everything there. And my logical head says, I need to know. The reason this is not a negative, throw his hands up and go, well, there it is again, meaninglessness. It's not that. He's moving us systematically to this truth. When you can't see the solution, trust the heart of God. William Cowper, many of us will know him and even this hymn. But he says, uh, he was a contemporary of Isaac Watts, if I remember right, or one of those guys, uh, and he had had a terrible life. And he kind of moved together with a couple of these other hymn writers, and they put together a hymn book. And, and in that hymn book is one of the most famous statements that we find in secular stuff, especially uh, applies into Christianity. But here's the poem that he wrote, and it hits on what I'm talking about and what I think the preacher is talking about in Ecclesiastes 8. So bear with me. There's several stanzas here. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. When you, and maybe you're here today, and you're living a life full of trouble, run to the end of that and come to the end of yourself and find the hand of God in your situation and fall into it and trust him to do for you what he has done for countless others through history to hold you close to himself and carry you through The way we approach our troubles matters. So we need the right perspective on that. One of my mentors put it this way. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way. 
She left me none the wiser for the things she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she. But oh, the things she taught me when sorrow walked with me. Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you will. Let's consider the situation of your life today. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've never had that confrontation with him where you understand who he is and what he offers to your life and the love of God that is embodied in him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then you're not finished with your search because your search needs to take you to him at the place that you're most vulnerable in life where your own resources cannot get you through. Jesus steps in and gives life. If you don't know him like that, then today is a great day for you to get to know him. This invitation time might be a good time for you to start with that conversation. I'll be down front. We can come talk. Uh, we can set up talking otherwise. You want to send me an email, we'll have that conversation. But Jesus Christ is knocking at the door of your heart with a good offer, the best offer, in fact, for what life can be for you. Many of us know that already. We've established that relationship with him. But trouble has come aplenty. Where is God in that for you? Is it possible that he's done that or allowed that in your life to get to a point where you're willing to say, okay, God, whatever you need to do with me, I'm, I'm game. What do you do with the trouble that you're facing today? Father, ask, we ask that you take this time now and that your spirit we know is at work in the lives of people to bring change, to honor your name, and to celebrate your love. So we pray that you'd have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.